Our Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day and drawn us through a worship and prayer and the hearing of your word. We're, we're grateful for what we have received already. Uh, a very good reminder, Lord, from Isaiah and from our own preacher this morning about our identity in you and the security that that brings in face of the onslaught of the world. But I pray that that will seep into our hearts and minds and may we reflect on that. And Lord, to this morning as we um, press into Ruth for today and next week, I pray that you'll help the teacher to have some sense of clarity. And I pray, Lord, for those who are going to hear that you'll open up hearts and minds to receive uh, this really sweet and powerful book uh, nestled in in your Old Testament. So bless that, we pray, and bless our efforts, uh, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's still some seats around, I think, some up here in the spit section. Uh, So come on. I haven't taught for a while. I've I've been out since the beginning, end of April, um, and and so I've got a lot of pent-up teaching energy. You know what that's like, don't you, Jim? You got it going too, right? I can see. Uh, so I'm sorry about that. I'm not sure what's going to happen this morning, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, the other thing I'd say is I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be teaching this morning, but I'm disappointed not to be able to hear my colleague, Osvaldo Padilla, who's teaching another class. Um, I commend him to you, by the way. If you get a chance to hear Osvaldo, I think you would be very blessed. I think he's teaching through the uh, pastoral epistles, so I, I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, we're go- we're going to take a couple of weeks th- today and next week and here to do Ruth. Now, I'll have to lay my, lay my cards out for you and let you know why. Now, I'm teaching Ruth in the fall uh, to students of beasts. I'm going to work through the Hebrew text. Um, so I, I need to figure out something about this book. So I'm using, you all are guinea pigs. I, it's, uh, um, so let me, if it doesn't go well, I can make adjustments before I move on. Um, so we'll spend two weeks in Ruth. That's really not enough time. There's a lot to cover in the book of Ruth. Four small chapters. Uh, I, I, David asked me if we're going to take questions today. I don't know. Probably not, to be honest. Um, I've heard the questions over the past two weeks, and they've been too hard. Um, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, but uh, we, we, might, we might have time, time for questions. So, um, so I'm going to try to kind of give an aerial view of the book of Ruth and come at it from multiple points of entry. And, and so we're, hopefully this will, will make sense as we, as we go along. Um, so something about Ruth and about the power of narratives and stories in the Bible. It's a funny thing how the Bible comes to us, isn't it? You think about it, the Bible doesn't necessarily come to us packaged in the way in which we would prefer it to be packaged. Um, I mean, some of us, for example, especially you left-brain kind of people out here, and I might put myself in that category, um, we like didactic literature, teaching literature. In other words, um, this is how you put the bike together. A, then goes to B, then goes to C. You know, I did this with my own family. My wife had the very um, genius idea three or four years ago to buy one of these massive uh, playground sets for the backyard. <laughs> and Home Depot said that for 200 bucks they would put it together. Well, I'm a man. I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to put this together myself. I'll never forget the truck showing up in the backyard, <laughs> dropping off loads of boxes and... Four days later, with multiple amounts of profanity later, the thing is now there. So, I, I mean, we're, we're sort of, I, I, I like didactic stuff, so it could lead you here to here to here. Um, but, the, so, but the Bible doesn't come to us that way. The Bible doesn't come to us in, this is what you need to believe about God, 
in the way our confessions of faith come. And I'm very grateful for those, our 39 articles or other confessions that the history of the church has affirmed and received. Um, and I think we need that kind of didactic literature. We, we said one today, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This helps give us a sense of what we share in our common conviction and our common life together about God. But the Bible doesn't come that way. The Bible comes to us in multiple forms, multiple genres. It doesn't come to us in such a way that you say, I'd like to know what God thinks about the church. Well, you find that on pages 375 through 425, right? It doesn't come that way. It comes to us in Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. And if you've done any Bible reading programs, you might have made it through Genesis and Exodus, and then you dump it once you get to Leviticus, right? Like, what's going on there? Uh, Numbers, another one, kind of dump that one. Deuteronomy, Joshua and Judges. So the Bible comes to us in multiple forms, poetry, wisdom, um, confession. There is uh, didactic literature like Romans and Corinthians and the Pauline letters, but the Bible's preferred method of communication, and this, I think, comes as a surprise. If we were to do a kind of quantitative analysis of the Bible, the, the Bible's preferred method of communication is story. It's narrative. Um, and narratives are powerful. Um, this, this is a challenge, I think, to me, or at least it has been with my own particular predilection when it comes to, I don't know, thinking about things. Um, I, I came to appreciate the role of story and fiction and narrative too late, really. I'm sort of filling in the gaps. But I can remember my sophomore year of high school with Miss Isaacs, who was my English teacher. And I thought Miss Isaacs hung the moon. I mean, this woman was a great teacher. And I was sitting in her class, and she would sit up there, and she would talk about the danger of using to be verbs too much. And I honestly had no idea what she was talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but I just listened to her. But we had to read uh, John Knowles' A Separate Piece. Is, that, is he still signed that book around? Uh, so I read John Knowles' A Separate Piece, and I just, you know, I had football practice in the afternoon and playing with the buddies outside later, and so, so I had to find time to read this novel. Didn't really want to do it. I've got children that are like that. Um, and I was overwhelmed. I, just, I remember 15 years old, reading this novel for the first time, not all that interested in that particular kind of intellectual discipline and being overwhelmed with being brought into a narrative, into a world that allowed me to see humanity, that allowed me to see life from multiple angles that can't be captured with just mere aphorisms, maxims, or bumper stickers. So, so if your tendency is a, and I think a lot of us have this tendency, but if your tendency is a kind of reductionistic tendency that wants to take the complexities of life and boil it down to a maxim or a bumper sticker or a nice little aphorism that can make sense of the complexities of our world, I might understand why you don't like fiction or narratives or stories because a story won't allow you to do that. I mean, how many of you have had the experience of reading your favorite novel again and again? Or, let's put it back into the Bible world, of going to the Bible and reading stories that you've known from your childhood, flannel graphs and all. And now all of a sudden you're reading this story again and all of a sudden new vistas come before you, new points of entry, another angle, another means of associating this book with another book that sheds light on that book in a way that you've never known before. 
And the Bible never ceases to surprise with this. That's happened to me even this week in preparing for this morning. I've known Ruth, the book of Ruth, since I was a little boy. Many of you wouldn't be able to say the same thing, but reading it this week, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I didn't know that before. I didn't see that association before. I didn't realize that Ruth and the author of Ruth might be tapping into the Tamar Judah incest story and doing something. That's next week. There's a little foreshadow next week. Um, I didn't know that. Right? So all these things are sort of bubbling up because narratives and story have the ability to reach into our hearts and to reach into our minds and to allow us to see the world in ways that mere maxims or propositional statements won't allow. Um, I mean, well, I want to talk more about that, but I won't. So, uh, so much of the Bible is narrative or story, and Ruth is a narrative as well, and it does not disappoint. Ruth is a rich, a rich story. Now, let me say something about where Ruth is located um, in the Old Testament, and I'm going to get teacherly here, um, so uh, you, we'll have to uh, put the, the, the mental clutch in and just shift to third gear for about 10 minutes, if that's okay, and then, and then we'll downshift again. Um, Ruth uh, is a Moabitess woman. She's a wandering woman. And Ruth, the book of Ruth, much like the main character of Ruth, has a wandering status as well. The book moves around in the Old Testament. Now, if we were to do a little quiz here on books of the Bible, we won't do that. Um, and thankfully, you don't have to know that to get into heaven. It's a wonderful thing. But um, if we were to kind of do a quiz on the books of the Bible, this is how you know Ruth in our English Bible tr- uh, tradition. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then into Samuel. And I want to talk about that in a second because I think that's an important location in the canon. Now, but there's a place in the Hebrew Bible where Ruth tends to be located, and it's not between Judges and Samuel. It's right after Proverbs chapter 31. Now, before I sort of press into this, because I think these are helpful avenues, interpretive avenues to understand a book like Ruth, um, and I'm, I'm going to press into it. But before I do that, I do want to kind of step back and give you an aerial view of why I think this question is even important. And this has been a shift for me over the past decade, I guess, of my own teaching life and Bible study life. Um, I guess my tendency historically, when I look back in my early 20s, early Bible study days, K. Arthur inductive Bible study fellowship, I don't know, whatever you all do, and those are all great, um, is to uh, atomize texts. It's to deal with text in isolation. So, for example, we're going to do a study in the book of Isaiah, and we just go, right, and we're in Isaiah. There's 66 chapters. We're going to try to make sense of this book. We're going to dive into it, deal with the major literary themes, the major figures, understand what's going on in the narrative movement of the book, and now we've got Isaiah. And that's rich and wonderful and very productive. I, I, I you know, pay the mortgage doing that kind of thing. But there's another a, a point of interpretation for me that's become equally important, I would say. And that is raising questions about where books are located in relationship to other books in the Bible. That's important. Because we begin to see now that the Bible and the books of the Bible are having this internal conversation the one with each other. They're talking to one another. 
So, so here's Proverbs with Job and Ecclesiastes very nearby having a conversation about what wisdom is and how wisdom is to be properly applied in life and what are the limits and the, of, of the reach of human wisdom. So you have that there where the Bible begins to talk to itself. A Deuteronomy ends and then Joshua begins. And how does Deuteronomy end? Well, well Moses is a friend who speaks with God face to face. How does Joshua begin? Joshua is a servant of Moses. Moses is a servant of God. So you see here this particular relationship between these books that are now talking to one another. Joshua doesn't make sense apart from the five books that precede Joshua, namely the Pentateuch. So how we begin to read, and I, by the way, I'd say something very similar about the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I've gotten teacher Have I lost you? Hold on. <laughs> Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you, if you go and buy a commentary on Luke, well, I bet we have one in our little resource center here. I would imagine that most modern commentaries, when you look at Luke, will say something like, Luke acts. Have you heard that phrase before? Luke acts. Why? Well, because Luke the doctor wrote both of these. And volume 1 is often viewed as Luke the gospel, with volume 2 being the acts of the apostles. And so people will say that on that genetic basis of Luke-Acts being related to one another as a two-volume two book, that that's how we need to read it, Luke-Acts. And I think that's fascinating, and it's generative of interesting ideas and insights. I don't, don't want to downplay that. But here's something interesting. There is no attestation in the history of the early church reading and reception of the New Testament that ever read Luke-Acts that way, ever. You always had John in between Luke and Acts. In fact, Acts now functions canonically as a bridge from the fourfold gospel into the Pauline letters. So whatever the original two-volume thing that Luke did, those have been dislodged from one another, and they're functioning in different ways in the canon now. Luke, properly with Matthew, Mark, and John, Acts functioning as a bridge that takes us into Paul. I think all that's very fascinating, and it's important to help us have an interpretive angle and a handle on what are these books that we're engaging. So, so back to Ruth. Ruth has this ability to move. And in fact, I think an argument can be made that Ruth, at various points in her reception into the canon of the Old Testament, was properly located between Judges and Samuel and after Proverbs chapter 31. Can I give you a slight little argument for this? Here's the deal with... Um, uh, with her in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, you want to turn there? Um, some of you ladies are getting nervous. You've had too many abusive Proverbs 31 Bible studies. Don't worry. So here we come to Proverbs chapter 31. And how does Proverbs 31 verse 10 is this whole discussion between King Lemuel and his mother about what a virtuous woman looks like. And it says in verse 10, a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. All right. Well, what happens after that? Well, when you go to Ruth, chapter 4, or 3, verse 11, Boaz refers to Ruth as an excellent woman or a woman of substance. He uses that same turn of phrase you have there in Proverbs chapter 31 to describe Ruth. So here you have Proverbs 31 ending, leading into Ruth, and what happens? Well, Ruth 
becomes canonically an instantiation, an actualization of what the virtuous woman that King Lemuel's mother describes in Proverbs chapter 31. Ruth is the virtuous woman of Proverbs chapter 31. And that provides a kind of angle of entry into um, raising certain questions and having a kind of anticipation about what Ruth is going to be doing. And uh, why is this interesting? Because if if you haven't clued in on this yet, Ruth is not an Israelite woman. Ruth is not from the neighborhood. Ruth didn't grow up in Judah or in Bethlehem. Ruth is a Moabite woman, about which we'll say a little bit more. She's a Moabite woman who's a foreigner who's now coming as a foreigner back into the land of Israel. And and I'm going to not bear the, I'm going to tell you. By the end of the book of Ruth, she's no longer described as a Moabitess. It's a fascinating move. All throughout, it's Ruth, the Moabite woman. Ruth, the Moabite woman. By the end of the book of Ruth, it's no longer Ruth, the Moabite woman. It's the woman who's been fully incorporated into the religious and worshiping life of ancient Israel. That's Ruth, the Moabite woman, who's now Ruth, the full-fledged Israelite woman. Ruth, the progenitor of the kingdom of David and his offspring. So it's a fascinating move here. But that's what you get sort of canonically. Well, you have something similar in the move between Judges and Samuel. All right, so if you go to the end of, of, of Ruth, I don't know if you have Bibles or not, but I'll, I'll do this for you. Ruth chapter 4, verse 15 says this, He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. This is um, Boaz talking to Ruth. For your daughter-in-law, he's not speaking to Naomi, who loves you, and who has been better to you than seven sons has given him birth. She's been better to you than seven sons. You flip a page in between uh, uh, Ruth into Samuel, and now we're at the story of of, uh, Hannah and the prophet Samuel. And do you remember what Elkanah, Hannah's husband, said to her when she was barren and weeping and yearning for a child? Do you remember this line? Don't try this one at home, I would say. <laughs> Elkanah said, am I not better to you than ten sons? Right? That, that was his line. Which is a line that's sort of borrowed here from the end of Ruth as well. I joke with people, you know, we have three boys and a little girl. When the empty nest comes, I'm going to try that line with Naomi to see how it goes. Right? <laughs> All your sons are gone. Am I not better than three or four? I, I think there'll be crickets. You know? <laughs> So here we see, right, that Ruth's location in between Judges and Samuel, that location there tells us something about the redemptive history of Israel. It tells us something about what God is doing in Israel's midst. How does Ruth begin? In the day when the judges judged, in the day when there were those particular charismatic leaders that gave oversight to the people of God, that God had set apart to do his leadership in their midst, those figures that served in that intermediary period between being established in the land of Canaan and then having an actual king over over them. And that particular time, here comes Naomi and her husband and her two sons and Ruth, and they arise onto the scene, and they become the means by which God is going to transition in this redemptive moment to another time, to another movement of God producing something in his midst that's redemptive and powerful and life-giving. And that tells us something about what kind of story Ruth is. Now, 
Uh, would love to talk about genre, but I, I, I think I've already gotten boring enough, so I, I won't do that. But I will say it's easy enough to classify Ruth as a kind of romantic drama, a novella. That's how Herman Gunkel in the early 20th century described the book of Ruth. It's a little novella, maybe, right? But there's something about Ruth and its genre that is, to my mind, quite interesting, again, in its own conversation with the Old Testament. Namely, Ruth ends with a genealogy. Now, those are the parts of the Bible that I imagine, if you're like me, right, when I get to genealogies, you know, it's like, you remember the old, old stories when you were kids, you heard the bing sound, and you flip the page, bing, you know, flip the page, right? That, that, when I get to genealogies in the Bible, it's like, next page, please, right? But genealogies serve a very important purpose. All throughout the patriarchal narratives of Genesis, you'll go through a story, and then there's going to be a genealogy at the end. Why? To show that out of that particular moment, God is preparing something new for the future. If Ruth is to be read properly in its Old Testament context, I believe we need to read Ruth in light of these patriarchal narratives. God is about to do something new in Israel's midst. God is not going to allow the past word to be the final word. There's a genealogy. There's a future. There's a seed. There's, there's a promise that God has given, even in this particular story, for what God is about to do. Okay? Now, I had all these things that I wanted to talk about with genre, but I see that I'm not going to do that. All right? Now, uh, what about the story itself? Ruth. Um, can I just tell it? What a good one, right? So here you have Ruth, um, who's the daughter in law of Naomi. This is how the book of Ruth begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, Kilion and um, Mahalan, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The, name, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and then he had two sons, Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites, or Ephratites, from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab, and they lived there. So you know the story. Here they go. There's a famine in the land. Here's the crisis that gives way to the movement in the story. All right? so, and all of these dramatic elements are present. If you're looking for good drama, tension, resolution, dialogue, all of that's going on in Ruth. So here there's the crisis that arises. There's a famine in the land, and they go to Moab. Now, this is complicated, right? I think we need to be very careful not to read the death of Naomi's husband and two children as a kind of uh, understanding of God's judgment on them for leaving Judah and going to Moab. I, I don't think there's anything in the narrative, I've heard this before, by the way, with people who read Ruth, I don't think there's anything in the narrative to suggest that or intimate that. But I do think it's fair enough for us to remember that Moab, that little town in the southeast part of the Dead Sea, that Moab historically were, are the enemies of God. Um, they're, they're not the people that are invited to the family reunion. They don't, they don't get a place at the Thanksgiving table. Um, where do the Moabites come from? The term Moab means from a father. What does that mean? Well, you go back to Genesis chapter 19 with Lot, and Lot has an incestuous relationship with his daughters. Remember, they get him dressed. It's a horrible scene. Well, the children that come from that relationship are the children that, that eventually produce the people of Moab. 
So it's not a great lineage. I mean, if you're looking to write a family tree, you, there's always a warning, by the way, when you do these familytree.com things. Like, be very careful. You know, you're going to find out things you probably don't want to know about your family. I would imagine that the Moabites, when they did their Google search, were like, gosh, didn't know we started that way. Not, not a great way to start. <laughs> uh, but this, this Moab. So here they go to the land of Moab, and now the crisis occurs. And what's the crisis? Well, they, Naomi becomes husbandless. Elimelech dies. Ruth and Orpah become husbandless, but they're young. Their husbands have died. Now, I know that this can be a kind of slight offense on modern ears. Now, we don't live in a culture that's heavily patriarchal anymore. Maybe some of us do, but I don't live in that world anymore. Um, <laughs> The good old days, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I have a story to tell, but I'm going to resist it. Um, we don't live in that world anymore. But to be in the world of the ancient Near East, in ancient Israel, or in Moab, or any of these Mesopotamian cultures, and to be husbandless, to be childless, in a patriarchal society that demanded the patronage and protection of a male leader, um, it's a serious social blight. And it's not only a social blight, it's a serious um, physical danger. How will we provide for ourselves? Um, not having a child is a very important thing. And not having a husband's even worse. This is why, and we'll talk about it next week more in detail if, if, if we get to it, but this is why the story in Genesis 38 of Tamar and Judah is so gut-wrenching. Judah won't give Tamar another son. Well, then she's going to take matters into her own hand. And now Judah is going to have relationships with Tamar, and it gets bad. Real bad. Why? Because the moral problems associated with giving your body away are not viewed nearly as badly as it is to not have a husband or not to have offspring. This is why Hannah is like a drunk woman in the temple, because she doesn't have any offspring. Um, and so th this is significant here. This is the crisis. Don't have any children. And I, my husband is dead. So what does Naomi say? Naomi says, well, I hear things are better now back in the land of, of Judah, back in Bethlehem. I'm going to go back to my people. I will be able to find some kind of shelter there among my people. But listen, you girls, you're young. I, and it's a fun play here. This is why the story is it's good. I'm, I, you need to read it. But it's, it's a good story. What does she say? I'm, I'm not going to have any children. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. And even if I did have a few children, you're not going to wait around for them. So listen, Naomi, I mean, uh, Orpah, listen, Ruth, you all stay here, stay with your people, stay with your father, and, um, and find husbands. And what happens? Orpah and Ruth weep. And, and then the verses go on a little bit more, and then it says, Naomi insists, no, you need to go back. And what do they do again? They weep. I mean, the scene is just filled with pathos. These women have grown to love one another. You can't get away from from the intentional relational dynamic that's going on between these three women, and they love each other. They're weeping, falling on each other's necks, but she insists. And so what happens? Orpah reluctantly, heartbrokenly, goes back to her father's house and waits to get another husband. That's all we hear from Orpah. And we can't say from the narrative that she made a bad decision. There goes Orpah doing what Orpah does, and she's gone. We don't see Orpah again. She in dramatical terms, as a flat character. She's there, and then she's gone. But what does Ruth say? Ruth gives that most beautiful line. You, you, some of us have heard it in weddings. It's weird in weddings, by the way, but we've heard it in weddings. <laughs> um, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. 
And this is what Ruth says, I, I'm, I'm committing myself completely to you. And here comes the, an operative word in all the book of Ruth, the Hebrew word chesed, the Hebrew word loyal, loving kindness, um, obedient love. Ruth is a, is a model of that chesed toward Naomi, even though it may cost me my own social status and well-being for the rest of my life. I'm going to follow you and your God and your people no matter what. I'm going to be loyal to you. I've not read any commentaries that say this, so I'm stepping out on a line, or I'm stepping on a line. But I think some of the language that's used in Ruth chapter 1 and through the whole book typifies for us with Ruth what Israel was meant to be. Ruth is Israel as Israel was meant to be. What is Israel meant to be? You've read it all throughout the Pentateuch. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I'm going to be loyal to you. And what do I expect in return? I want you to be loyal to me. That's what I yearn for. For you to be loyal to me. Not perfect. Not, not, we sometimes have a bad view of the Old Testament. Like there's some to-do list, even in the Old Testament. I did that, I did that, I did that. No, it's, it's a relationship of loyalty, of loving kindness back to the Lord. And here is Ruth embodying that. It doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter if you never have another son that I can wait on and marry. None of that matters. I'm attaching myself to you. And here they go. Back to a land that's not our own back to a people that she does not know, away from the security of her own patronage with her father back in Moab. Here she goes with Naomi, two women on their way to be used providentially as the means by which God is going to make his kingdom promises known. It's incredible. So here they go. And again, it's hard for us in the 20th century world, 21st century world, to appreciate the danger and vulnerability of this. But these women are in a very dangerous and a very vulnerable position. So now they come back to, uh, to, to Bethlehem, to Judah. And do you remember what Naomi says? Everybody says, is this Naomi? Naomi? Is this, which in Hebrew means my delight? Is this my delight who's come back? And what does Naomi say? Naomi says, I went away full, but I've come back to you empty. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitterness. Call me difficulty. Call me angst. That's what you need to call me now. I'm, you, you, the woman that left with her husband and two children and went to Moab, that's not the same woman that's come back to you. I'm not that woman anymore. I'm a different woman. And this is what we're going to see in the dramatic movement of the book of Ruth, is this Naomi, who's the central figure of the book, really, this Naomi begins to transform back to my delight by the end of the book. But in chapter 2, She's a mess. She's Mara. She's bitterness. So now these women have to get strategic. They have to get smart. This is, by the way, again, one of the praises that comes to the virtuous woman in Proverbs chapter 31. They, they know how to handle business affairs. They know how to deal with difficult things. They know how to pay some bills, all right? And so here is Ruth and Naomi, and they're figuring out, well, how are we going to eat? I've said this to my boys before in certain contexts because, you know, we just slap food in front of them, and they eat it. And they go their way to some electronic whatever or out in the backyard. And every once in a while, just, I'm like, you do realize, don't you, that this all comes very easily for you. Like, you've, ne- you know, you've never paid for a meal. You've never wondered about your roof. I remember my dad saying things to me like that. I just went over. And now I, I, I feel that deeply. Like, you boys, so, do you know that there are, do, there are people in the world whose entire existence 
is about survival. What are we going to do to eat breakfast or lunch or dinner? And all of our hours of the day are given to that task, surviving. I was like, and our, we, we don't even know what that means. But this is their world. Our whole existence from getting up in the morning to going to bed at night is, how are we going to eat? All right, Ruth, we've got a kinsman. We've got, we've got somebody who's close in relationship to us. And his name is Boaz. Now he's on the scene. Oh, Boaz, right? He comes onto the scene. He's a wealthy landowner, a magnanimous figure, a figure that's completely inviting and compelling. Boaz is a man we all want to know, right? He's good to his workers. He's thoughtful to the poor and the needy. I mean, Boaz models chesed as well. He models loyalty and loving kindness. And so this is what um, Naomi says. She says, Ruth, go, go to Boaz and, uh, and see if you can glean from the corners of his field. I'd love to talk about the economics of this because I think it's important. But built into the economic system of the Old Testament itself, you read Leviticus, you read Numbers, here you have in the book of Ruth, built into the economic system itself was a notion of caring for those who are in need. Don't, don't till the corners of your field. Keep some left over so that people can come in and get some that's, that's been... So in other words, when you... And I've seen this before, right? Down in, uh, in Dothan, Alabama, where all these cotton fields are. I've got a friend who's a cotton farmer. And what, what do you see? Well, they've got the big cotton gins that go through or those big, I don't know, he's got this John Deere tractor with a GPS on it. These things are amazing, right? He's going through. And then I asked him, I said, David, because we watched them during harvest one year. I said, David, this is his name, look at all the cotton still out there. He's like, not worth it. In other words, like to go through and try to get, but there's a lot left. I mean, I think this is the kind of thing that you have going on here. Don't go back and try to get that last bit of the cotton. Leave that there for the poor and the needy to come in and to get something that's left over. And that's what Ruth does. She comes in, and, and how do Ruth and Boaz meet? The Lord be with you. And how does Boaz respond? And the Lord bless you as well. And then Boaz begins to inquire, who is this woman? Um, she's the, here we go again, the Moabitess who went away with Naomi, but now she's come back and she has no husband. And what, is, what, is, what does Boaz say? Uh, leave a lot for her. Matter of fact, let her have even some of the sheaves that you have. In other words, all this, all, from your work, leave some for her and let her take it home. And by the end of chapter 2, Ruth is sitting at the table eating grain and bread and dipping it into the vinegar, whatever that was, and, uh, and, and, and she's with Boaz. It's a quite moving scene here that God is providing for Naomi and Ruth through this figure, Boaz. Well, they come home, and she brings home all this food, all this barley, all this grain. And now Naomi begins to think, hmm, maybe Boaz, because he is the next of kin, and we'll talk more about the details of this next week, but maybe Boaz is the means by which I can provide for you a husband. still matter to Naomi. And so they devise a plan. Now, it's Ruth chapter 3. Let me see what time we're doing here. Oh, I, I, I'll make this very fast. No questions. Sorry. Um, so it's, it's steamy. I don't know what else to say. Are we all adults in here? Um, oh, uh, what, 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 is, what does Naomi say in chapter, th- I mean, chapter 3? Hey, uh, put some perfume on. Uh, change your clothes. In other words, she probably was wearing widow's garments. It's very similar to what happens in places in Samuel and Kings as well. Get your widow garment off and get your bridal dress on. Or, I don't know, your cocktail dress. I don't know what else to say. Now, in other words, let your garment that you're wearing, Naomi, I mean Ruth, let it communicate to Boaz, how do we say this, that you're available. 
right? That you're no longer a wife in mourning, but you are a woman who is prepared uh, to... Uh, and, and what does Ruth say? She says, okay, I'll do it. So what, 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 remember the instructions? I'm, I, you can tell I'm getting nervous because I'm, I'm this is... It's steamy, okay? So she tells Ruth, she says, Ruth, get, get, get gussied up, perfume on, get, get, get a good outfit on. After he has drunk fully and eaten... So smart, right? Why? Because he's not going to have a care in the world. And he's lying down on the threshing floor. Go to him in the middle of the night. Now, you know, I'm just going to lay it tell you. I don't think anything sexual happened that night between. I'm just going to tell you. But the sexual tension is present from beginning to the end. Because what is she supposed to do? She's supposed to go in there and when he's lying down, uncover his feet. Now you could you go read the commentary literature. There's a lot of discussion that feet might be a euphemism, whatever. No, I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. I, don't, I think that, that's too, too far. Because remember, she's a virtuous woman. But it is a kind of provocative move, right? I mean, who does that? And there's no attestation anywhere in the Old Testament that this is a kind of mating ritual. This is just Naomi telling Ruth, you go and do this and you lay at his feet and you get gussied up for him and let him know that you're ready to get married and the sexual tension in this t- passage is present from beginning to the end. One commentator argues that Ruth uncovers herself and lays at his feet. I don't think that's the case. But the, the, all these commentators are struggling with, something's going on here. <laughs> when we were in Scotland, we had very good friends. And I'll stop with this. We had very good friends um, who, who became dear, dear friends of ours, still to this day. And, uh, and in the middle of a, remember, we come from a fundamentalist world where, you know, holding hands and kissing and all that stuff. I mean, I hope my boys, you know, like, don't, don't do that, all that. You know, stay away from that. It's dangerous. You light a fire, that fire won't go out. So we, 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 we had all these things. You, you get it. Purity rings, all that stuff. And, um, and so I'm with this, my friend, and he said, yeah, well, when, when so-and-so, his, his, his now wife, we, when we, were, we were camping in Vancouver, and, uh, and he just kind of said, and they went, I said, I said what? He said, we were, we were in camp. I said, what do you mean? you Were were you married? No, we weren't married. I said, well, what do you mean you were camping? Said, were you in the same tent? He said, yeah, we stayed in the same tent camping. I said, well, how can you do that? I mean, like, like, that's impossible. I mean, and he was like, Mark, nothing happened. I was like, well, how did nothing happen if you're in a tent? Like, I, I, like, um, that's, the, the, that's the picture that I have here in Ruth chapter 3. Nothing happened, but they were in the tent, all right? And it's steamy. And then uh, we go from there, and now Ruth, and now we, this, and we'll finish the story next week. But what's, what's, the, uh, what's the big issue here? The one thing that I want to plant as a seed for our conversation next week. God is rarely mentioned in the book of Ruth. Rarely. But God, as the acting agent, is present in the book of Ruth from beginning to the end. And I love that about this book. You want to know why I love it? Because we get into dangerous territory theologically when we begin to define miracles. When people start to define miracle, I I get nervous because all of a sudden they're they're not going to be able to do it without giving some kind of deistic response. In other words, what's a miracle? A miracle is when God suspends natural law and then does something out of the ordinary. But the question that's begged with that kind of answer is, well, what's happening with God in normal life? All right. 
When the sun rises and sets and the tides come and go and we're going to school the next morning and we go to work, well, what's happening in normal life when the roof's not blowing off? Where's God then? Just sitting on his throne? And a book like Ruth and a book like Esther, these books are in the canon telling us something about the character of God and the daily routines of life. God's name is not present and forward throughout the book of of Ruth, but God is ever-present and active, working through His agents to further His cause. Why? Because by the end of the book, who's holding a baby? Naomi is holding a baby. The woman whose two sons died and her husband died, and she has nothing. She's destitute. It's not Ruth at the end of the book holding the baby. It's Naomi. But here's God in His providence, in His normal providence, where He governs the creaturely affairs of humanity, the silly decisions that we make day in and day out without giving any thought to them. God is behind these things, orchestrating them toward His own end and His own glory. And the book of Ruth is a big, loud cry. Yes, I can step onto the Red Sea and split it in half. I can put my foot on Mount Sinai and and the earth begins to shake. I can do all that kind of stuff. But I can also do Ruth. And I can do Esther. And frankly, I do that more than the other. So Ruth is a great, I think, witness to us about the character of God who comes into our lives in the normal, prosaic, quotidian, everyday walking on the sidewalk. Because God is present even in those kinds of mundane activities, which leads to David and the Savior of the world. So Lord, thank you for a book like Ruth that just so heavily charged with so much. And yet its simple witness tells us that you, God, are involved in our suffering, in our loss, in you bringing joy out of the sorrow, in you bringing a son when there wasn't one, in you bringing something new when we thought everything was dead. That's your character. It's the way in which you brought your kingdom into the world. And Lord, it's the way in which you will establish your kingdom forever. And we're grateful. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.